understand where the problem was earlier. All right. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 reads this way. For the word of God is alive and powerful. Raise your hand if this is a familiar passage to you or a familiar verse that you've been quoted to. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than what? A double-edged sword. I think you have your cheating now, but you knew that anyways. Between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Uh, If you didn't know, we started a new series called Noticing God. Why are we talking about noticing God? Because I think it's the number one thing that all of the world is looking for. We might call it different names. We might not always use the name God. But we will all be looking for meaning, for purpose, for direction. I even believe that we're looking for holy words spoken to us, an encounter of some sort. And we may go to different lengths and different avenues. Some of us, honest to goodness, may go to sporting events because that's, that's where we feel connected, right? Some of us may go to concerts. Some of us may go to bars. Some of us, us, go to church. We may have all different things that we go to looking for connection, for meaning, for purpose. I think for the sake of brevity, Let's just call that God. We want to notice God. We want God to notice us. You ever wonder if God can be noticed? You ever wonder why your pastor seems to notice God? Your pastor gets words from God in the morning, on Sunday morning, writes them down on an index card, comes to you with the words, God has given me this word. And you're thinking, well, why doesn't he speak to me? Hmm. You ever wonder if you, Kai, do you think Kai, do you think Kai Spangler can notice God? Oh, I believe children have the ability to notice God far better than their adult counterparts. Lachlan, you're in luck. You are a child. God especially loves children. Can we notice God in Scripture? That's where we turn our attention to this morning. There's several different places we can go to notice God. Next week, we'll talk about noticing God in nature. Maybe we should just, actually, in two weeks, uh, next week we'll be in the park noticing God. Woo! Hello! Noticing God in nature next week. Uh, In two weeks, next time I get to speak to you, we'll talk about noticing our Lord in nature. Donnie, do you ever notice God in Colorado? Yeah, maybe we'll have you preach in two weeks, okay? (laughs) This week, we're talking about noticing God in Scripture. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than what? Double-edged sword. So one way, one avenue we notice the Lord is through Scripture. It's being attentive to the way that our stories are becoming congruent with His. But let's just be honest about Scripture for a minute. I almost, a quick impulse in me said, have, them, have everybody raise their Bibles that brought them. And then the good side of me said, don't do that. So I won't do that. But let's talk about Scripture real quick. Let's talk about the authority of Scripture. 
seeing if anyone is clenching yet. The authority of Scripture has fallen on tough times lately. What once seemed like a given, I don't know if any of you were around, was anyone around when uh, using the Bible as an authority was far easier than what it seems like it is today? When you said, God said it, so you should do it, and that seals it, and that's it, right? Jeff's back there nodding his head, right? You remember these days. I'm not just making this up, right? There was a time once where it seemed like you opened the Word of God, and authority was right there just coming out the pages. Does it feel like that as much anymore? It may feel like we need to get back to that, but as far as just to be honest about it, Do you have that same, do you feel, not you personally, but do you feel that culture has that same respect for the Word of God as it used to have? What used to be such a simple conversation, it's written down, follow it, has now turned more into a conversation you would likely witness between a teenager and their parent or guardian. Now, just tell me, Kelsey, if this doesn't sound... Okay, this is a conversation between us and God, but tell me if this doesn't sound like a conversation between you and, and uh, your dad back when you were a teenager, okay? All right, here it is. How do I know that this is good? But what if I don't want to do that? Okay, okay, how do I know you're not just making all this stuff up so I do what you want me to do? You ever ask that of God in so many words, maybe in your own language? I don't have to listen to you. I can do what I want. Now, we've all said that, both to our parents and to God. (laughs) I don't need you. This is what our culture is saying right now. I am my own authority. Have you ever said that to your parents? I did once cause my dad to cuss. One of the few times I've ever heard him cuss. I don't need you. I'm my own authority. Yeah, right, he said in so many words. You're full of it. (laughs) So I have a question this morning that I just want to be honest about the way that Scripture's approached. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer it out loud. Has Scripture lost its historical impact in contemporary culture? Let me just ask it this way. And Ryan, I'm picking on you today, but I'm not expecting you to answer, and I'm certainly not trying to embarrass you. I just see you. you, You're so handsome, man. I can't help but just bring you up. I now embarrassed you, okay? (laughs) So I just want to know, what impact does Scripture have for Lee Summit West? You go to school tomorrow. How will this impact your life tomorrow at Lee Summit West? Let me see. Bruce, you work for uh, Burlap, right? The burlap project, it's beneath the foundry. Am I getting this right? Okay. Has scripture lost its historical impact for the good you do in religious sectors? Has scripture lost its impact for what we do as educators, for what we do as neighbors, for who we are as citizens in the United States? And Lee Summit. The scripture had the same impact. Here's another way to maybe get at what I'm trying to get at, Elizabeth. God seems to speak so clearly in scripture. Does God still speak today like he spoke in scripture? 
It seems so clear when God spoke to Moses. Does God still speak to people like he spoke to Moses? Okay. All right. I want to ask this question. Can we notice the same God we see in Scripture? Can we notice that same God today? Now, I'm not looking for Sunday school. Oh, this is like I'm teaching a teenage class again. I'm not looking for Sunday school answers, which we all know the right answer to that. We all know what the preacher is going to say. Of course, the preacher, yes, the whole sermon, it ends with, yes, we see, <laughs> yes, we see. We all know that's where I'm headed, okay? It's not rocket science. But I'm wanting hard, honest answers, not just what we know, but where we live, where we live. Today, well, if it was a normal Sunday, we'd be watching the Chiefs game. I guess we're not going to be doing that today. We did that on Thursday. <laughs> we're going to be watching NASCAR. Are they in Kansas today, Roger? I thought so. Can we notice the same God that we see in Scripture? Can we notice that God as we watch TV this afternoon and eat meatloaf or whatever it is you eat on Sundays? Can Scripture be trusted? Can it be trusted? Can we trust Scripture, what it says about homosexuality? Oh, boy, did it just get hot in here. See, I know what you know that I'm going to end this conversation with this sermon with this is God's Word. I know you know I'm going to go there, but I'm actually asking in reality, when you watch the news this week, whatever you watch, wherever you live, I don't need to go in politics, but we all know this is some of the most tense time of politics anyone can remember. Is that right? Can we trust that God has a word to say about this tense time that we live in? Can we trust it? Okay, I've got a larger point. I just want to get real about real life and real issues here and see if, yes, I know you wouldn't be at church if at some point you didn't believe God loves you, and that that's recorded in Scripture. But do we trust that this is a living word, sharper than a two-edged sword, that it's alive, and that what it has to say isn't necessarily about who's in and who's out, but what it has to say even when it talks about genocide, which is so hard to understand in Scripture, that everything written here is about God's goodness for you. Can you trust that? Do you trust that? Do you trust that when you open the book of the law to Leviticus, that what you will read in there is God's love for you, do you trust that? Oh, you do. That's probably why you all read Leviticus every night. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, before we move this, Justin, before we move this conversation any further, there's 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 four key components before we ever end up at the very place you know that I'm going, which is this is God's word. He speaks here. He speaks today. You can trust it. You should trust him today. Okay, that's the whole sermon. That's where I'm going. But to actually hear that, to actually hear those words, there's four key things about faith that I feel like have to be said. 
Because, Steve, what we're dealing with inside this gathering is faith. And faith, without faith, is faithless. So in this room, I can see that didn't go well. What I'm trying to say is that the matters of faith require trust. You're not going to know. You're not going to know. There is a big, deep divide on several big issues that we have drawn sides for God. We may never know, no matter how much we yell at each other, where God actually sits on those sides. Do we trust that he still has a word and that he's for us? Or do we have to know where each one of us sit on a particular issue before we decide if we're going to stay at New Beginnings any longer or not? Do we trust? Four key components about faith. And faith requires faith, which means faith is different than science. Can science and faith coexist? Absolutely. It's a beautiful thing for scientists to tell us about how God does the things God does. Scientists doesn't know it all, but they know some of it. And it's marvelous. Science is great. They had a spacewalk on the International Space Station. It's fantastic. Fantastic, but as the, as the uh, control room talked to the astronauts in the International Space Station, first time only females walked outside, did a spacewalk. It was pretty awesome. When they talked to each other, did anybody else watch this? Sweet, I'm the only nerd here. <laughs> so, so, so they had a live feed. Oh, man, 2019 is so great. They had a live feed. I was watching astronauts walk in space. It was awesome. And they were like out in space. Like they were out there in their big spacesuits. And they literally had to ask permission for everything. I'm going to move my left hand now to control unit XB, whatever, da 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 This is the language. I had no idea what was going on. And then the control room would say, yes, Sandra, you may move your left hand. And then they would repeat it back. No wonder the mission took five hours. <laughs> They're dealing with certainty. They knew exactly where the part was, everything about the part when they were replacing it, what time down to the nanosecond that they were replacing it, and all of the steps that it took to replace that part. That is science. Boy, we wish faith was like that, do we not? God would just show up and tell us right now, boom, and this is what you need to do, this is where you need to go. If I was speaking to only youth today, I would launch into a big thing about dating right now. <laughs> that God would have exactly our partner for us, tell us exactly who that was supposed to be, and it would be settled. God said it. That was it. Well, faith wouldn't be faith if it was science. It ain't science. It's faith. And so do you trust that it's impossible for the world to be created in seven days? But God said it. So do you trust that whatever is said in those first two chapters it's said for our good. It's said about God's good.
goodness. All right, all right, all right. So here's the four key components that we need to establish before we talk about the words of God anymore. And then I only have just a couple key points about the words of God. And then I have a story I want to share with you. And if all goes well, you'll be smiling at me at the end of this, okay? All right. So, uh, Brady, I think I have the first point at the very next. Yeah, key principles of faith. So before you ever open your scripture tonight for your daily readings, before you read it, this is what you have to know. All right, this is, this is the, ba- there has to be assumptions, right? Every classroom that you enter into, there's assumptions of the subject that you're studying that you have to establish those assumptions before you can build upon anything else. These would be the four assumptions that I would argue you have to establish before you're ever going to believe that whatever's written in here is actually for your good and not for your peril. All right? Because if you do not trust that God loves you, then you'll read this and you'll get to those six scriptures that talk about homosexuality and you will be convinced that God hates every gay person in the world. And there are certain groups of people that have read the scripture in that way and that's what they have established. You have to know that when God speaks, he speaks to you because he loves you. Otherwise, you'll read this and you'll realize how awful you are. And the God that writes the things that are written in here must hate you. There are people that have read Scripture that way. There are people that read holy words and come away with it that we should terrorize other people because of the holy words. So please trust me in this. It matters how we approach God's word. The first key principle is everything written in here is because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Do you know? Do you trust today as sure as the sky is blue that God loves you? Can you say right now with utmost certainty and faith that you just trust that you trust that God loves you? If not, anything you read in here is going to come out in the manner in which your heart is conditioned. So if you don't trust that God loves you, then you won't be able to trust a single word that's written in here. God loves you. Someone told me two Sundays ago, Pastor, don't ever preach without telling the people that they're loved. You follow that with, you do that well. Okay, good, I'm going to keep it up. God loves you. God loves you. Do you trust that this morning? The second key principle is that we must trust that God wants the best for us. Okay? Otherwise, we'll open this up and we'll get to the part where Paul is writing about how women should never cut their hair and we'll get this, or or, let me back up, let me use this example. We'll get to the part where Peter says that women should never speak in church. Okay? Now, if if, if God doesn't want the best for us, then women should know their place. But I don't think that's at all what God is intending for Peter to say. At all. Because God wants the best for all human beings. He wants the best both for women and for men. And in the kingdom of God, there is no longer male or female. That God wants flourishing life for all. And for some people, it just requires females to get the job done. Like, 
Like replacing the part on the International Space Station. If a man could do it, a man would have done it. God wants the best for you. If you don't believe that, you're going to come to some contextual words that were written in context to a specific people at a specific place with real-life problems. And you're going to take them out of context, apply them to your life, and if you don't believe that God wants the best for you, then you may be conditioned to read Scripture where God actually hates you rather than loves you. So there are four, before you open your Bibles tonight, there are four things that I feel like you've got to get in the right heart posture before you open Scripture. Otherwise, Scripture will say whatever you want it to say, and that's dangerous. That God loves you. That God wants nothing but flourishing life for you. That everything you touch, everywhere you go, just explodes into life. The third assumption I, 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 I doubt it's very many people here. I really do. But I bet there's at least one person in here that the name God makes you shudder because all you feel is immediate guilt and shame. Friend, I don't know who that is. It's not God. And if that's real, if there's someone really here, let me allow me the privilege to say, Satan Get out of here in the name of Jesus where there is shame and fear that is not God and anything that's not God is not welcome amongst his people here this morning. Flee. Get out in the name of Jesus. Friends, you are loved. God wants the best for you. And God is the best. God is good. God can be trusted. So I don't know where you fall today in the spectrum of decision-making. But you may not have to make whatever big decision you feel like you're being pressured to make. You know you can just trust God that he's going to lead you to flourishing life. That he wants the best for you. That he loves you. And that God's very nature is so holy and so pure. Anything that God speaks cannot return void. So before you open the scriptures tonight for your daily readings, and you should open your scriptures tonight for your daily readings, I want you to know this. Whether God is speaking in Deuteronomy or God is speaking through Jesus in Matthew, God loves you. Every word that comes out of his mouth, whether it's in Deuteronomy, Matthew, or Revelation, God forbid, the scary book, it's written because he loves you. He wants the best for you and that he's good. And the fourth assumption is that God still speaks. That God doesn't change. He's the same today. He was the same yesterday. And he'll be the same when? Tomorrow, forever. He's the same today yesterday and forever. What does that mean? The heart and character of God is what is speaking. Again, it's not science, folks. And if it was science, it would be a really bad book. 
There's so many incongruencies with science in this book. Good thing is, it's not about science. It's about God, and God is good, and God loves you, and everything written in this book has authority. Why? Because it's proven to be true that God loves you, that God is good, and God is leading you to places of honor and privilege and even prosperity, that there's nowhere that God is leading you that does not flourish with life because this book tells us that God is good, that God is life, and that God loves you. There's all different ways to notice God. But a primary way we know is Holy Scripture. If you want to know how we got 66 books and not 75 books, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about that. Small group asked me that question. I love those types of questions. This is not the avenue for it. This is the Holy Scripture of God. It is the Holy Word of God. And it has authority to all things pertaining to our salvation and to the goodness of God. It is to be trusted. Anything coy I said in the beginning was only to grab your attention. I believe this is the holy word of God. I don't want to be mistaken. It is the absolute holy word of God. It can be trusted, but if we don't trust in it, it's going to be hard to find anything good in it. God chooses a primary way to reveal himself, Kelsey, and it's through words. It's through words. The whole book begins like this. In the beginning, God said, dot, 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 and it was so. And God said again, dot, 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 and it was so. God's covenant promises are recorded with words, and when those promises are fulfilled, the celebration goes along the lines of God did what he said he would do. God reveals himself through words. Why words? I don't know. You'll have to ask God when you get to heaven why he chooses words, but it is words. John 1, you know this passage. In the beginning was the... Yes, so when God becomes flesh in human uh, flesh in Jesus Christ, the Word became human and made His home among us. This Word was unfailing love and full of faithfulness. And we've seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And so God desires not only to speak life out of words, to speak salvation from a word, but God desires to make us into his words for the world. We, I believe, are being made into holy words and the world around us will come to notice God by the word of God they see in us. But if we don't trust that God is good, God is love, that God wants the best, then we'll want nothing to do with God's word in our life. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we will be God's word spoken to others. Oh, I believe that we're becoming the type of congregation, Bruce, that somewhere down the line, somewhere, someone is saying, do you believe that God still speaks? And the other person says, yes, have you met Bruce Newfer? That's the type of people I think we're becoming. People will come to hear God's voice through our hearts. 
But if our hearts aren't right, meaning, Steve, if our hearts aren't trusting, then we may never hear God speak through Scripture, ever, because our hearts don't trust that this is still relevant for today. That line between trust and distrust in God's Word, I, I believe it's real. I believe it might be more real than what you're letting on this morning. I believe it's the fundamental struggle of Christian discipleship today. If we took a poll, how many people read their scripture daily here? I think we would be disappointed in the results. See, what God desires to do is to abolish any lines of incongruency that separates humanity from his will. Our broken hearts from his whole heart. He wants to take notice. He wants us to take notice of this work. The Lord wants to speak to us just as he did in Scripture and move within us to erase the separation between heaven and earth. That's what this whole thing is about. That God's glory would invade our world and become his glory. God wants to make smooth that line of distinction that makes our ways uneven to his ways. The words of God abolish the incongruency between the way we live our lives and the way God desires that we live our lives. What Jesus said about the law, I believe, can also be said about all of the Bible. God did not come to abolish the scripture, but to fulfill it. So that in Jesus, the dividing lines between God's will and our will, God's economy and our economy, God's justice and our justice, is wiped away the new creation of heaven began, begin, can begin right here in the lives of human beings. I believe that is what the Word of God is doing and why it is active, alive, and sharper than a two-edged sword. It's not that God's Word is irrelevant for our culture and time. I don't believe it is at all, at all. But I want to ask this question before I close in a story. Do we trust in God's relevancy in our culture and time? Do we trust that God still has something to say? Not that he is done speaking, but all this book does is tells us the ways in which God speaks the context of what he says, and he says the same thing over and over and over and over again. Yes, it's appropriated differently in different cultures and different times. Yes, the promises of God are still the same promises. They will look different in 2019 than they would in the year 5 BC. But do you trust that God still has something to say so you want to notice God, right? One of the best places to notice God is in Scripture. I'm making an assumption this morning that there's something that's keeping you away from reading Scripture as often as you would like. Maybe I've made a really big assumption. But that's the assumption I made in writing these words. Why would you come so strong from that angle? Because I assume that you're not reading Scripture daily. And it's not because you don't want to. 
I assume you're not reading scripture daily because you feel guilty about it. I'm not asking you to tell me if I'm right. I just wonder how right I actually am. (laughs) Friends, God loves you. I love you. It's not about how much you read scripture. It really isn't. It's do you trust that it's relevant for what you do? And it's relevant for what you do, no matter what it is you do. Do you trust that God's words are for your goodness, are for your flourishing, are for your life? Whatever is said in here is going to be said in 2019. Do you believe that God still speaks today? He does. What he's saying today, he said back then. What he said back then, he's saying today. So it's good to get to know what he's saying today. It's how you're going to notice God. And it's also how you're going to notice God in Scripture, that you get familiar because he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus didn't come to abolish those 39 books that we call irrelevant. He didn't come to abolish that. He came to fulfill that. You're not going to know Jesus unless you know those 39 books because he came to live those 39 books. You're not going to know the full picture of the character of Christ unless you know the law, all five books. It's not there to tell you how bad you are. It's there to tell you how great Jesus Christ is. So my assumption today is that you don't read your scripture as as often as you would like because I don't read my scripture as often as I would like because I don't know where to begin and I feel guilty that I'm going to open it up to something that's going to cause me to feel really bad about myself. There's full honesty. I preach with these assumptions because they're preaching at me. And I don't think I'm alone. So I want to tell you one story. I only preach on topics like this because I think it's going to help us grow in our love. Not to make you feel bad about yourself, not for me to put myself on blast. As a millennial, it's just easier for me to tell you about my crap instead of talking about yours, okay? I don't, I don't know why. It's just you, you called a millennial to be your pastor. So if you're like, man, this dude is weird. I'm just from a different generation. And it's easier for me to talk about my stuff. It doesn't bother me. I don't think I'm an awful person. I just think I have work to do. I don't think you're awful people. I just think we have work to do. (laughs) And I'd rather do it with you than to do it without you because I love you. So this week I was standing down. It's going to go quicker if I just read it. This week I was standing down across support for a table frame. I'm learning the skills of a woodworker, but I wouldn't say I'm good yet. I'm learning on basic tools and often have to substitute a primary tool for use of a secondary instrument. They make a specific tool for the work I was doing. It's called a number seven planer. It's made of metal. It's long and narrow. Its frame supports a razor-sharp blade that edges out the bottom at a 25-degree angle. The long sole of the number seven planer glides across the surface of the lumber until the edge of the blade meets the grain and then slices it down until the surface is smooth and plain. But I don't own a number seven planer. They are very expensive. I own a number five planer, a general purpose tool 
that's not quite as long or smooth. I picked it up at a thrift store for a quarter of the price that it originally cost. It's old and has been used in a solid metal. A little attention to this thrift store find has shaped it up to be a great asset for me, an amateur woodworker. It's a fine tool. I'm just not that good at it yet. And I'm trying to use it to do another tool's job. Long story short, I have streaks. I leave streaks in the lumber when I am planing the width and thickness of a board. These streaks, they leave lines in the lumber. A sharp and decisive edge where one side of the line is slightly higher, maybe by a sixteenth of an inch. But this streak, this dividing line is so sharp and so, so distinct that it's visible to the naked eye. Now, if you're doing rough work, that would be like the, um, uh, the two-by-fours that are behind the sheet of drywall. Okay? If you're doing rough work, you don't need to worry about streaks in the line of lumber. It's all hidden by the finish. Wouldn't be a big deal. But when the wood is meant for a finished product like this, a big streak down the center here would be noticed by the naked eye. So this is where number seven planner would help me out. But not having one, I get out a substitute, an orbital sander. Now, why an electric sander will do the job, it's not the classical craftsman way. The sander is a modern substitute for the handmade way, the, the real way, the Amish way, the woodworker's way. So still being an amateur woodworker and a small fortune away from affording the right tools, I plug in the sander. Find my rough grip, five-hole paper, and I get to work. It's not the tool I want. I want the professional finish of a number seven planer, but this substitute does the job, and as I rotate the spin of the face over the visible lines, they slowly disappear. See, the sander works, the line is gone. It takes a bit longer, it leaves a different finish, not as shiny, not as complimentary of the grain, but the line disappears as the division in height and surface reunites to the same equal height and rise. The board is now ready for its finish. The work I'm doing, albeit a different method than the original, is abolishing the lines of, of uneven timber on its way to perfecting the function and appearance of furniture. Leaving the lines will be less than desired for the finish. In order to be right, to be perfectly functioning as designed, the surface of the lumber will need to be one width, length, and level surface. See, what the woodworker does, the good woodworker, not me, the good one, the woodworker abolishes lines on their way to a level surface. God talks to me on the morning that I'm leveling lines in my garage. He tells me this is what he's doing in my life. I know I've preached for a long time, but listen to this. <laughs> and that he desires that I participate with him in doing the same for the world. We've made quite a mess in the sharp, distinguishable lines we have created between brothers and sisters of the same human race. In our own human history, we have left many streaks and uneven surfaces in the world. 
Sharp contrast where the difference between one side and the other is often far greater than a sixteenth of an inch. But it's more personal than that. Later in the day, he speaks softer and more specifically at me on Highway 71, headed north, at a stoplight. I started to cry. Because this is what God said to me. Jake, you've made sharp divisions in your own life and character. You've cut out extremes of what it means to be successful, human, a father, faithful, a lover, a husband. Jake, you have left sharp divisions in your own understanding of what it means to be a human person in this world. You often make corrections by slicing a thin line of division and jumping to the other extreme. This is what Christ pointed out to me that day. This is what he's desiring to sand down in my life. The extreme lines that I create between me and my preferred future, between me and faithfulness, between me and my brother, between me and my wife, between me and the one I'm in conflict with, between my position and the other position. He tells me, Jake, you are the lumber. You are the lumber that I love and have selected. Your own adventure of self-salvation has left streaks in you that I'm sanding down by getting involved, by entering your life, by running myself over your surface, just as Nathaniel was promised to see Christ as the holy stairway that provided the connection between heaven and earth. You, Jake, are the lumber of the earth. And I am the grit of the sander that is smoothing plain the surface of your heart for heaven and earth to be joined in you. The lines God is erasing are the lines that separate me, us, from his covenant love, from his words, from his word. He loves us, and his desire is for us, period, full stop. The words of God are not about keeping good things from us, but opening the full depth of goodness for us. The word of God erases the line between us and him, the line between selfishness and selflessness. God will always have a word. God has not become mute just because the culture has turned to different stories for meaning and for purpose. He will speak to you. Do you want to hear? He will speak to you. When God moves, it will be the same way he has always moved. Covenant love, Jesus' presence, we read all about it in the Bible. The lame will walk. The blind will see. Yes, I'm talking about the real lame will walk. The real blind will see. Do you trust that's true? The poor will be fulfilled. The hungry will be fed. God doesn't do anything apart from his word. His word and his story never changes. And what is his word doing? Sanding down the lines of separation that have caused us to be uneven with one another 
uneven with our parents, uneven with our significant other, uneven with cultural issues, uneven with political issues. What is God's word doing? It's standing all of that down so our hearts are congruent with his, so heaven can live here on earth as it does up there. Father, we give you praise this morning. We've gathered here, and with great patience we've listened to the love that you have for us. Lord, unite us together as one body in this moment coming to life in your word. Praise be to God. Amen. Amen. Well, on the night that our Lord was betrayed,